I'm Nolan Tennant. And I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. What are we talking about in this episode, Non? This episode is a follow-up, or you could say a continuation, really, of our last episode on whether or not singleness is a gift. And so we said, no, not in the way that evangelicals mean it. Obviously, all every season of life, including a season of singleness, can be a gift from God. But evangelicals conflate the so-called gift of singleness with the very real gift of celibacy. So the biblical norm isn't lifelong singleness, but rather a season of singleness followed by marriage. And yet, this biblical norm is becoming increasingly rare. And in fact, we would argue that the church is facing a singleness problem. Absolutely, and that's what we're going to tackle today. All right, Michael, can we defend our assertion that there is a singleness problem? Yeah, I I think so. And first, we have to start with kind of the broad trends in society And there is a trend towards, first off, just delaying marriage. So what you have is people that are staying single for longer and and longer than they used to. Now, the trend's not as steep as some people would have you believe, because there's this idea that back in the day, everyone got married when they're like 13, right? That everyone's getting married when they're in their teens. And that's actually not true. Uh, It's a bit of an exaggeration. There is a kind of a normal... Uh, marrying age. So for example, in England in the 1700s, women were getting married around 25, men around 30. And then then you come over to say Pennsylvania, the Quakers, from the marriage records we have, we saw that women were getting married around 23 and men 26. And then later uh, in the 1700s in South Carolina, we have women married at 19 and men at 22. So basically the early 20s to mid 20s is is pretty normal. But mm-hmm. things have been changing the last century and a half or so. So for comparison, here in the, here's the US census data showing the median age of marriage for selected years in like the last 150 years or so. And I'm just going to kind of round them up a little bit. So in 1900, women were getting married at about 22 and a man about 26. So I was, it was well within the, the historical norm. In 1950, it drops down to 20.3 for women and men 22.8. And that's, that's right after World War II, where there was lots of economic options for people so they could start families earlier. And you see that marriage age trends younger when the economy's solid and it trends older when the economy is not solid. And so that's, there's a sort of like flexibility in the number. To 75, it stayed about the same, 21.1 for women, 23.5 for men. But then 2000, we really start to see the effects of this, the sort of sexual revolution. Women are now getting married at 25.1, which is very old given the strength of the economy, and men at 26.8. Now, the newest data, and I, I look forward to getting more, but the newest I could find is from 2013, where women now are getting married at about 27 and men at 29. 
basically, we're seeing a steady move towards people delaying marriage later and later in life. Now, I mean, that, that's backed up by just anecdotal evidence. Anyone who has friends of that age knows that people are getting married later because you have to go to university and start a career before you can get married, right? That's exactly right. And it's so the, the whole, everything has changed in the way that we do life. The whole economy and shape of society has changed that require or seemingly require later marrying ages. So we see people are staying single for longer. And also that overall marriage rates are in a massive decline over the last 70 years. So in 2012, one in five adults ages 25 and older, about 42 million people, had never been married. According to a new Pew Research Center analysis of the census data, in 1960, only about one in 10 adults, 9% in that age range, had never been married. So in a nutshell, fewer people are getting married, and those that are getting married, marry later in life. And here's the big thing. It doesn't mean that people are living a sexually chaste life. Hmm. You know, cohabitation rates are in a sharp increase. For example, nearly half of women in what researchers call first unions with men, 48%, move in with no wedding vows, according to interviews conducted between uh, 06 to 2010, up from 43% in 2002 and 34% in 1995. So those are really quick Mm. jumps. Where, like, it, when we we're going over the Marian ages, you saw how it was very. It was quite uh, slow. It was subtle, right? But now we're yeah. seeing things moving at exponential rates. It's like something that, they're moving in parallel. The marriage ages are changing more slowly, but it's because so many people are abandoning marriage and that's going exactly straight right. to cohabitation. Yep, that's exactly right. And according to Barna, roughly 65% of Americans believe cohabitation is a good idea. When the same question is asked of millennials, the percentage rises to 72%. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I've had that conversation with millennials. And the other thing is, so when you look at the number of sexual partners that people have, it's really disturbing. The data, again, it varies somewhat based on on studies, but one I looked at that seemed pretty solid was a San San Diego State University study. And the researchers there analyzed a huge data set from the General Social Survey, a nationally representative survey of more than 33,000 American adults. So a real big sample. I mean, that's that's samples everything when looking at stats like this. Mm-hmm. And it was taken between 1972 and 2012. So they found an adult millennial has had uh, 8.26 sexual partners on average. And boomers had had 11.68. Now, I've looked at some even more recent studies that suggest that it's much higher. That for women, millennial women, it's around 10 sexual partners and millennial men around 14. But there's a lot of other factors that you have to take in. Women tend to uh, lower the number where men tend to exaggerate it. Yeah. And you also get, you have to almost um, divide it by cohort in terms of (laughs) what, what red pill guys call sexual markup value. Like, Pick all the attractive women, ask them how many partners they've had. You, you probably find that it's way higher. And then there's this kind of low-end cohort that have had virtually none that skew the results down. Yeah, exactly. And the main takeaway, though, is that these people that are single are still having lots of sex, mm-hmm. right? They're not, uh, they're not, you know, 
just sitting around being pure. That's not what's going on at all. And so, and you, and you hear that number, you might, you know, think, wait, what's going on? This, this means our parents, like the boomers, uh, had more sexual partners than us. And mm. why is that? Well, I, I think there's a lot of ways to explain that decline. We've talked about a little bit with the uh, sex recession and the increase in androgyny is actually driving down sexual tension. But another part and a major factor is just the increased use of pornography. That Which in turn just drives the increase in androgyny because men that use pornography a lot tend to not be the kind of men that attract women. Not at all. No, because it removes masks. It, you know, the sex drives a, is a good drive that drives you towards positive things. When you take yeah, the, when it, the, the usage of pornography is widespread. We all know that. And let me just go through some very conservative stats. Uh, first, 12% of all internet websites are pornographic. 25% of all online search engine requests are related to sex. So that's about 68 million requests per day. 35% of all internet downloads are pornographic. 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. And, and that was by their, their own estimation. 70% of men aged 18 to 24 visit a porn site at least once a month. The average age of first exposure to internet porn is right around 11 years of age. Uh, I've also seen it recently said to be nine. Mm. The largest consumer group of internet porn is men, 35 to 49. And this is a shocker to a lot of people. One third of all internet porn users are female. There's two things going on there. They're maxing out the number of men that they can serve porn to. So they're looking for new customers. So they're, they're actually hiring people. Aggressive marketing. That's right. They're, they're hiring people to make pornography that moves towards a woman's interest, which is more fantasy story-based, hence mm. uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, that sort of stuff. Okay. And the other thing also is that women feel uh, pressure to, they think this is what's normal, right? They're, they're trying it's just to- the same as women entering the, market, the workforce. 1960s, all the women were feeling pressure to enter the workforce. And now in the 2020s, they're all feeling pressure to enter the pornography usage sector. In summation, we're seeing exploding rates of singleness, but these singles aren't being sexually pure. I mean, they're looking at pornography. They have multiple sexual partners. And another, I mean, another evidence is that the number of births that are happening out of wedlock. I mean, 2012, over 41% of all births we're out of wedlock. I mean, we mm -hmm. are literally a nation of bastards. And that stat rises to about 57% if you isolate it down to mothers that are considered millennials. So 26 to 31. And what's even more horrifying about that stat is that it ignores the fact that one in three children didn't make it to being born and that a lot of those children, the vast majority, I would argue, are the ones that, of the ones that are reported, ones that are uh, conceived out of wedlock. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So 41% are actually brought to, uh, they're actually born, uh, yeah. where a, a huge number, millions are, are killed. And so this, this is a crazy sharp increase. In 1970, about 11% of all births were to unmarried parents. And by 1990, that figure uh, rose to 28%. So more than doubled in 20 yeah. years. More kids are being born to broken families, more sexual partner, more pornography. And as we see rates of singleness going up, we're not seeing less sexual sin. We're seeing the same amounts in some sectors and, and exploding amounts in others. Well, okay. So the general stats are bad, right? The, the general population, I think any Christian who's listening to this would agree 
these, if anything, they expected the stats to be worse. But surely it's not like this in the church, right? I mean, in most evangelical churches, if you were to take the stats out of the evangelical population, they'd come way down, surely. Yeah, I mean, at some level, they would come down. But my experience as a pastor, as a church member, as a Christian man, is that the the levels of fornication are still really, really high. And, And you and I both talk to men, do counseling of one sort or another. I do. I looked, I did a hundred, hundred phone calls in 2019 with different male followers and did that uh, one to hopefully be a help and a blessing, but it was also for research purposes, trying to understand what men were up against. And uh, it's, it's really bad. And I had this conversation with this fella. I was out at a trade show in Vegas and this guy had to fix my door for my uh, patio. And he's a, he was a good looking big Christian guy. And, and we got talking about Kanye West and all sorts of things. And then I asked him if he was married and he wasn't. And I asked him why he wasn't married. I was like, just don't want to be married or haven't found the right woman. And he said, well, it's a little bit of both, but I am really struggling at finding the right women. You know, this guy's like kind of like a young Denzel Washington. He's a good looking (laughs) dude, well-spoken, very likable. I enjoyed the conversation I had with them. So it's not like that there's not options out there. And I said, well, what do you mean? And then he says, well, I go to this church. He tells me the church name, which I Googled later just to see what we're talking about here. And it was just a basically large non-denom in Vegas. And he says, I meet a lot of girls there. And he said, man, they, they'll like text me nudes right away often. <laughs> right. So these are church going ladies. These, these are church going ladies. And, and it's at a, uh, not the sort of church I would really want to go to, but it's still a conservative non-denom church. Yeah. And, and so it's just, I think based on the conversations uh, I've had in the phone calls and things like that, that it is not as bad in the church, but the church is usually just, just a little bit behind the culture in America. We're usually so it's not a, as bad as the culture is, but it's a lot worse than you think it is. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's very bad and, and pastors really need to get serious about this. If it's that bad though, I mean, what the heck is causing this? Well, uh, with everything, there's all sorts of factors. But one that I think is worth considering is this idea of hypergamy. I think hypergamy is definitely a big part of the marriage singleness problem that we're having in our culture, but especially in the church. And just as a side note, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and he said that he thinks that the the pagan culture is going to give up on egalitarianism before the church does. And I think he's exactly right. So I think, and and we're seeing that happening with the sort of red pill manosphere Mm -hmm. and, and the more mainstream sort of Jordan Peterson stuff. You're seeing that the non-Christian culture is saying, wait a second, this is insane. And because of, of things we'll talk about in a moment, the church is hanging on to it. So let me explain what hypergamy is. Yeah, please do. Some people call it hypergamy, whatever. I'm going to call it hypergamy. It's a principle that states that women naturally desire to marry of an equal or greater status. So in general, women want a guy that's a little bit older than them at least, taller, and more successful. This is something that is true across uh, culture and across time. These are well-known uh, attributes that women find attractive. So they want a guy that's got more status, that's bigger than them, and is doing doing well in the world based on 
whatever context that the guy is in. And if you doubt this, which I, I mean, most people probably don't doubt this, but if you want to get more into this, we have a podcast episode called Men as Success Objects and Women as Sex Objects. Yeah, that is a podcast that made a lot of people upset because they read the title and didn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> so you got this idea of hypergamy, which we'll come right back to, but also this first through third wave feminism radically altered the cultural landscape of the West for both sexes. I mean, all three of the waves, or and if there's a fourth wave, we'll just include that as well. And and here's how. Uh, first, w- women were liberated, and I got to put some imagine some imaginary scare quotes there from being domestic. Right, they were now able to provide for themselves financially due to workplace integration. And just remember, like, women have always worked, but it was in the home and related mm-hmm. to either their family or their husband. I mean, in the 1890s, it was about 15 percent of women uh, worked outside of the home. And it was only 40-some percent during World War II. There's this idea that there's like these huge rates of women working, but that's that's actually not true. I mean, I mean was, even then, that was just of necessity. Yeah, exactly. And right after World War II, it drops back down into the high 30s. And then um, you get into the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, and it's just, again, exponential. It goes where now it's, I, I forget, I think it's like 70-something. And so uh, they they able to provide for themselves. And more importantly, they now had control over their fertility through contraception and abortion. And so you've get, you get the pill in the 1960s and you get abortion in the 1970s. So now they could take care of themselves and they could also have sex. And if they get pregnant, well, they could stop from getting pregnant or they could just kill the baby and it was legal. And so then men were liberated from supporting women they now could get uh, low risk sex. In other words, they could get sex without commitment to a wife and a family. They could just pay for the woman to go have an abortion or use a condom or make sure she's on the pill or, or you know, they, they, it didn't really matter. There wasn't basically if they got a woman pregnant once upon a time, you got to marry that woman or at the very least, there'd be intense pressure for that person to commit to taking care of that child and shame and all that was being removed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you refuse to provide for a child that you had created, you were a failure as a man, whereas the sexual revolution kind of turned that on its head. And so this liberation produces a massive increase in single mother families. So if they don't kill the baby or prevent conception, it doesn't mean they're getting married. And that's partially because the, the shame of being a bastard and the shame of having children out of wedlock was disappearing. And also we have no fault divorce, all that sort of stuff happening again in the 70s. So we have an explosion of fatherlessness at the same time. So there's singleness at both ends. People are getting married less because they can have casual sex and people are getting divorced way more because there are no repercussions. Exactly. Then you also have women, when women entered the workplace and academy, it it reshaped the nature of both of those spheres. The, The workplace integration led to men modulating their masculinity. They had to dial down their manliness. And anyone who's worked in a integrated sales force knows all about mm. this. And then the ed- educational sphere has been increasingly augmented to prefer females over male tendencies. 
And you, Christina Hoff Summers has done a ton of research on this. In America, any boy that wouldn't sit still or struggle a little bit, we, we would stick them on Ritalin, methylphenidate, now Adderall. And boys are just more wiggly when they're young than, than mm-hmm. girls are. And it's, that's because they're, they're boys and there's, there's real differences. So that, that world started changing both the, the vocational world and the educational. And as it relates to education and career, women are, are doing much better uh, than ever before. They're doing really well. More women are graduating. There's Women are placing higher and higher um, in the corporate world, in the business world. Men, on whole, when you're looking at the, the rates, they're doing worse. They're not doing as well. Men are checking out of college and, and not performing at the same uh, levels that they once did. So in a nutshell, we have more highly educated women making better money and fewer highly educated men making good money, right? So the women the women are doing well, they've got education, they've got money, but the men are the exact opposite right now. And again, these are trends. This isn't all men. These are just general trends. So, so we've turned most of our men into more like women and we've turned most of our women more like men and <laughs> yep. that's a problem <laughs> it is a problem and that's sometimes we, like we jokingly or i jokingly when i'm talking to people on the phone tell guys if they want good advice for their life they should just follow what women's magazines tell women to be nowadays right yeah. to, to be independent to be driven so the availability of low risk low commitment sex combined with an ever-increasing push towards Higher levels of education has led to a delaying of marriage for men and women into their late 20s, early 30s. That's where we're at right now. So at present, we have a lot of high-performing single women that are coming up on 30 or past it, realizing that their childbearing years are slipping away. Let's quickly talk to that as well, because I think a lot of people don't actually understand just how serious that problem is and how instinctively it it is built into women. What do we mean when we say that after 30, your childbearing years are starting to slip away? Why is that happening? Without going into all the stats, um, I'll just read you something from the American Society of uh, Reproductive Medicine. So basically, uh, a woman's best reproductive years are in her 20s, and then fertility gradually declines in the 30s, particularly after age 35. Each month that she tries, a healthy, fertile 30-year-old woman has a 20% chance of getting pregnant. That means that for every 100 fertile uh, 30-year-old women trying to get pregnant in one cycle, 20 will become successful, and or 20 will be successful, and the other 80 will have to try again. By age 40, a woman's chance is less than 5% per cycle. So fewer than five out of every 100 women are expected to be successful every month. And so this really starts to set in on women when they're approaching 30 and certainly after 30, they have a, a real desire to have children. And consequently, this is where the, the biological clock idea comes from because it's hardwired into women. They don't necessarily know these stats, but they they just have a kind of instinct for it. Yeah, God made them to be fruitful, and yeah. and so when this when this starts to dawn on them, either they realize it or it's more of a subconscious thing. They begin to look for a more serious relationship. As a result of hypergamy, these women begin to look for a man 
of equal or greater status. So they are looking for an equally high-performing man of a similar or a greater age, and they also want him to be taller. So now, as a result of the cultural shift, the sexual revolution and all that, the number of high-performing men in their late 20s and 30s has greatly decreased. Low-risk, low-commitment sex greatly reduces a man's, a man's drive. Apps like Tinder or free HD pornography are, are robbing men of their desire to secede because once upon a time, that sexual drive would push you to do – it was part of the whole equation, but it would push you to do the things that would allow you to get a woman and, and a woman that you could have sex with and a woman that would bear your children. And now that that drive is being met by uh, low commitment sex or pornography, that is really decreasing a man's desire to have gravitas or status. And the present educational system discourages masculine behavior. Consequently, many boys and men are checking out. They're just, they're not going after these higher degrees. And to a lesser degree, the rise of video gaming is making men feel like a success without creating any real world benefit. I mean, the problem with gaming is that it does take practice and skill and drive to get really good. And so these men are disciplining themselves to be good in this virtual world, but it's not translating to the marketplace or the field or anywhere else. So it diminishes their desire to do what God made them to do. Basically, it's the creation mandate misplaced into a totally digital virtual world. Okay, so you've got these men who are conditioned to be effeminate. They're not exercising dominion in the real world. Uh, if they are exercising dominion, it's often in virtual reality. And yet women seem to think that there are all of these fish in the sea that they can wait until they're 30 and then find a great man. How, how does that happen? Well, there's a, there's a lot of things going on there. I think the, a big one is online dating because it gives the impression that there's all these men out there and that want these women's attention. And so it encourages them to hold out to meet Mr. Right, the person that meets all the requirements. And it's largely an illusion, especially for high-performing women. So requiring a single attribute would greatly reduce the number of candidates. For example, how many single men are there that make $80,000 or, or more? Right. So if she's looking for a guy that makes more money than her, how many of them are out there? Each attribute desired exponentially reduces the number of candidates until they are a percentage of a percentage. The number of people making 80,000 is pretty small, but the number of people making 80,000 who are also attractive and taller than her and all of these other things, it just gets to be, <laughs> there probably isn't even a man out there for her. It's, it's dismal. It's really dismal. The other aspect too is that because of social media, because of Instagram and Twitter and all these thirsty guys out there that are hearting and liking and praising all these women, they just get the sense that there's tons of guys that are really into them and options if they can just meet the right one. But again, it's largely an illusion. The other problem is that women will and often do date older men because of hypergamy. The opposite isn't true. Men rarely date older women. Uh, this means that high-performing single women have fewer candidates based on their desire for hypergamy, and those candidates are being pursued by younger women. And this means less options with equal or greater competition. So we've got 
older women that have to compete with younger women because the younger women are still willing to, uh, a 20 year old woman is willing to date a guy that's 30 or 40. I mean, we, I, I, I just, someone was telling me the other day how this guy married a woman that was 18 years, his uh, junior. That happens all the time, you mm-hmm. know, uh, way more than vice versa. A, a woman marrying a guy 18 years her junior. And so it's not normal. And the reason is because is men, men are, aren't hypergamous. They don't choose women based on status. It's more has to do with their attitude and attractiveness. In other words, a woman being highly educated and a high earner doesn't raise her value in the eyes of a man. The man is not looking for a provider. The man's not mm-hmm. looking for someone to be a helper for. <laughs> I mean, and in many cases, it can actually devalue her because he sees her as a competitor rather than a helpmate. And, and that just that drives women crazy. Modern women yeah. they hear that, that and, and and the problem is is that women think men evaluate women the way that they evaluate men. And this is why you'll often hear women say, I guess men aren't interested in or are intimidated by a smart, successful woman. <laughs> they might be intimidated in the sense like, is it worth it? Is mm-hmm. it, is this, is, can I wrangle this? Can I, can I win this battle? But yeah, they're not, they're not interested. That's for certain. Men are attracted to femininity. Money and education doesn't make a woman any more feminine. So let's just put aside whether or not women should be in the, the workplace. It's, let's just, it doesn't make them more feminine because women are known for their beauty and their, their attitude, not for their performance in the vocational realm. That's how, that's what women, you know, we talked about this in the sex object, success object, where a guy says, I got a new girlfriend. And the guy say, you got a picture? And the girl says, I got a new boyfriend. They say, oh, what does he do? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is not that the women don't care about what the, you know, the guy looks like. It's just whether he's successful matters to them uh, way more. And so don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's wrong for women to get educated or have jobs. I'm saying that it won't make them more attractive to men. It's a break even or negative. And so in conclusion, all these things are creating this, this huge singleness. Problem. I actually asked you how this affects the church specifically. Why is, this, why is singleness and fornication and sexual immorality happening so much in the church? But you have You've explained why it's happening in general, but how does it affect the church in particular? Well, um, basically, I mean, I haven't even really scratched the surface, but men don't like going to church. This has been a problem for hundreds of years. And you can read uh, Leon Pottle's book, uh, The Church Impotent, and he gives some background and then he proposes a theory, which I think is only partially right, but it's a, a, birth, uh, a book worth reading. And, and the reason is, is that the church is inordinately geared towards the feminine. The music is more feminine. The, usually the design, the preaching doesn't take risk. The, the preaching is, is often safe and it's just about making people feel good. And, and guys are like, well, why am I? here what what is this about so there's already that's why you get church so often described as a social club right that's right yeah and uh exactly and so th- there's already not a lot of guys there's lesser men in the church or fewer men in the church mm. uh there's what 60 percent women 40 percent men in your average evangelical congregation yeah if you're lucky so there's less men already and, and part of that is because churches are harder on what they see as masculine sins, but they're uh, softer on what are feminine sins. Like how often, I mean, I've, I've heard many of sermons on men kind of being players and fornicators and adulterers, but I, I've 
only heard a handful of sermons on on women being immodest and being basically what scripture would call whores or an adulteress. I've never heard a sermon in which the word whore is used. I, I have because I've run in some pretty intense circles. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but even even there, I, I find that most pastors have a, a deep strain of white knight in them, and they're not going at it as Explain hard as white knight. Well, white knight just is, it's the whole idea of, of a guy that's basically defending the woman against other men so she'll like them or approve them, right? That's what we yep. usually mean when we say that. And the reason why they're like this is that most evangelical churches operate with a Gnostic assumption. So Gnostic meaning it's the, it's an old, it's an old sort of cult that infested the early church that practiced radical dualism made a real strong divide between the body and the spirit. And so they're always downplaying the importance of the body and sexuality. So, so churches have less men. When men do come, they're harder on them. And if the men come, they don't really talk about what it means to be manly or be, means to be feminine. All men are told is to be good men, but not taught how to be good at being a man. Right. So be virtuous, but they don't tell them what, what that looks like practically. They just tell them the man up, but not what to do. Therefore, these men are turning to non-Christian sources on how to be a man, and they're leaving the church more and more. So here's what you got. You've got women that are looking for men that meet very specific requirements, taller, uh, high-performing, more status, and the church already has less men. So there's, there's even fewer of these guys there, but we have more and more women who really, even though they're evangelicals, are egalitarian functionally. So what's going to happen? Well, guys are going to continue to check out of the church because guys are sick of telling or being told to be good, which really just means to be more like women. They're sick of it, and they're checking out, and they're being influenced by these pagan uh, sources that are are mixed in their value. Uh, So they're checking out of the church. And the guys that are left are kind of like these weak guys that these women don't want anyway. And so, so it's a vicious cycle. It's feeding on itself. The, exactly. the guys are becoming worse and or leaving. The women are becoming more empowered and or becoming the, the majority. And so there are fewer guys that they want to marry and it just keeps on snowballing. Yes. And, and we know that, that widows – Taking care of widows is a big deal in the the whole of Scripture. But in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 5, and we'll talk about this more in a future episode, you know, one things that one of the things that you're supposed to tell widows who have lost a husband is to get married, mm-hmm. have kids, and work at home. And but they're not willing to do that because these pastors know that would really upset these women because they know that they can't tell these women that they've been lied to. You've been lied to. You wasted a very important decade of your life on pursuing things that aren't going to make you happy. They're going to make you more miserable. And now you have these uh, unrealistic expectations that a guy that meets a sort of hypergamous desire is out there and he's not out there. And so this is creating a real problem. It's, It's going to be a massive issue and there's lots of ways to deal with it. So the compromisers, they carry around a can of paint. And so the compromisers are like, let's just paint over this and call this something else. We'll call this the gift of singleness. Hey, this is actually a blessing, right? And then mm-hmm. the other guys out there are like, well, you know, there's nothing we can do. We just have to let the whole system burn down. So they've got their can of gasoline. They're basically 
revolutionaries and the way they're going to revolt from the system is they're just going to step outside of it and let the whole thing fall to pieces. What we have to do is we have to press for godly reformation. And that means we have to figure out how to bring God's word to bear in the system that we're in now. How do we, how do we teach men to be men in a fatherless society? How do we teach women to be women when they've been brainwashed into thinking that it's bad to be a woman and they, it's only good to be a man? <laughs> it's good to be a man. If you're a man, that's the podcast. But if you're a woman, it's good to be a woman. So what do we do? How does the church address this issue? Well, what do they do? Well, we're actually going to talk about that more on our next episode. Just as well, because we're out of time. So until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. (laughs) 